Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Time now for the College Football Inquirer with Dan Wetzel. It's still stunning to me that Jim Gatto, Christian Dawkins, and Bro Code are actually going to go to prison. Yeah. With SI's Pat Forty. That's one thing this book does is, is pull back the curtain most of the way. So that if anyone thinks there's such a thing as a clean big-time program, they need to wake up and smell the donkey right. Here's Pat and Dan. All right, welcome to the pod. Different type show today. And yes, I know we got Brian Harson in Auburn. We got Coach O trying to manipulate the federal penitentiary system. We got the Ohio ice fishing mayor. Slash, Big update on that. Yep. Slash, yeah, anti-prostitution crusader. Ice prostitution is stepped down. We got a lot, but we wanted to do this. Uh, Merle Code, one of the three main defendants who actually took this his case to trial in the uh, the big FBI college basketball scandal thing. He wrote a, he's written a book called uh, Black Market. Very, very good. Pat and I both read it. Uh, I know Merle for, for a long time in the grassroots basketball and uh, was there with him at, the, at his trial for, and, and, you know, went through it. And uh, he's got a fascinating story, uh, a real genuine story. This is a guy who was involved in virtually every single major great basketball player in the last couple of decades, what school they'd go to, what shoe company, different things. He was a guy who... I, I always found to be helping these kids more than anything else. But um, Pat, you've read the book. We've had this conversation. I thought he'd tell. We're, we're taping this after we have already talked to him. Thought he was. Uh, I thought this was a tremendous interview. Just very, very insightful, emotional. You know, just I thought it was great. Yeah, it's outstanding. Uh, and so, yes, a unique show because we had a unique opportunity to interview a really interesting guy who wrote an incredibly candid book uh, about how the system really works and how he got caught up and chewed up and spit out by the system, really, uh, despite being one of the, the most important people in the system. Uh, and so, yeah, we had a chance to talk to Merle and uh, he is he is heading to federal prison not long from now and to get uh, his thoughts on everything he's been through, what he thinks of the college athletic system. Uh, and where things are going for him and for and for college sports in the future. So it was a, uh, I thought a great uh, great different show for our uh, for our listeners. This As week. longtime listeners know, you know, I sat through almost every day of both of those trials. Look, the, the feds win ninety five percent of their cases because they can just roll people up, and they they just have so many advantages over you. If you think you got a chance in federal court, you really don't. And if you watch these kind of trials from start to finish, you just, you're mesmerized at how the da- the deck is stacked against an average American. Even with that, I, I, it's like all the time they appealed, all the different things, it's still stunning to me that Jim Gatto, Christian Dawkins, and Bro Code are actually going to go to prison yeah. for this. Yeah. It's not even against NCA rules anymore what they did. They were acting at the behest of college coaches in the recruiting process, and they are going to prison. I believe James Gatto is already in prison. It's unbelievable to me. There just wasn't a crime, and if there was a crime, it's you've lost your job, knock it off. I, 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 just, I just have no idea. When you listen to Merle, and, then, and if you ever talk to Christian or Jim Gatto, these are not people you'd be like, oh, this is a bad guy. I mean, these are the people you want to move next door to you 
you know, and, 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 and they, you know, if your lawnmower breaks, they come over and help you out. It's just, it's just incredible that, that we're at this place, but this is the spot for Merle code. So we will get to college football later in the week. We do not normally do. Yes. That's how impressed uh, Pat and I both were with the book and how um, impressed with uh, Merle code uh, I have been for, for both of us really have been for, for decades. It's a, it's a tough business. And for you, for someone to be so well thought of uh, says a lot about him. So without further ado, uh, here is uh, Merle Code, potentially days away from heading off to federal prison for nine months. All right, special guest, Merle Code, 48 years old, longtime Adidas consultant, Nike grassroots basketball. You may remember him as a Clemson player, was really good, played some pro ball. Welcome to the pod. Thank you. Know Merle for a while, covered his uh, trials up in New York, and uh, really glad to have him on. He is going to potentially report to federal prison later this week, maybe not. Still a little uncertain on all that, but um, obviously hours are dwindling, and he's spending some time with us. Uh, he's got a new book out, Black Market, tremendous. Both Pat and I read it, and I think the best compliment both Pat and I can give is we read this book almost straight through. It's really, really good. Extremely compelling. Yeah. Extremely uh-huh. compelling stuff. So I want to start with this, Merle. When someone says, you know, you know, I'm a consultant for Adidas. I work at Nike Grassroots Basketball. I'm this or that. You know, it's not like accountant, dentist. You kind of know what the job is. What What was your job? What were you trying to, what were you trying to do for your companies? Yeah. So at the, at, at the end of the day, you're trying to acquire the best assets in that particular sport that you possibly can. You're trying to show your value, whether you're inside of the, the corporate structure or outside, um, as somebody who has the ability to get into living room, to get into travel team or what the, the general public calls AAU programs, to get into college and university programs and really build a, a rapport with these up-and-coming superstars and their influential circle. Uh, the, the job is to make sure that the brand that you work for has access and can utilize that relationship and, the, and that and those access and touch points to further their business agenda, whether that be getting a kid to a particular travel team program that, that they sponsor, um, whether that be getting a particular kid to a university that they spend hundreds of millions of dollars in relationships with. Ultimately, if that, that young man or young woman turns out to be good enough to be a professional, hopefully they'll become iconic status in, in terms of all stars and the ability to sell products. So now you want them as an endorsee, uh, I'm sorry, as an endorser of, of your product. And so to ultimately sign them to a um, multi-year, you know, uh, very lucrative uh, endorsement deal. That's, that's the ultimate goal. But then again, those are the, the, the processes and the steps along the way. One of the things that came out of your book, Merle, is the amount of connections you have to just about every great player who's come through basketball in the last 25 years, going back to after your playing days ended. You've got personal experiences with Kobe Bryant, with LeBron James, with Anthony Davis, with Giannis, and, and everybody else in between. How, I guess, did you did you build up those relationships? Uh, and then how did you, I guess, become, I think, kind of used and abused in the process of doing your job by the legal system and your description of 20 armed federal agents on your lawn at six in the morning to the people that you were doing business with who ended up kind of, but just washing their hands of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's my, my story has definitely been an interesting one. There are a lot of things in the book and a lot of people that I've touched in the basketball space that I didn't even mention, you know, and it's, and it's not, I didn't want to get into a situation where I was name dropping, but I've had a really interesting basketball journey. I'm from South Carolina where it's not a lot of players of, of note, um, until recently, that have really come to the forefront. Now, there are a few. And luckily, I had an opportunity to, I grew up uh, less than seven miles from Kevin Garnett. Now, I'm older than Kevin, um, but we played against each other as kids. We've known each other damn near our whole lives. Ray Allen and I played played AAU together. You know what I mean? And Because Ray was a, a, a Army brat, and his family moved around, and they ended up settling in Sumter, South Carolina. And, and we, get, we played with each other. Um, and it's funny. He tells a funny story about coming to my parents' house. And my dad was a judge. And he, he walked in and thought he was like, man, these are rich people. You know what I mean? That's a, and that's <laughs> Ray Allen, you know, making a joke about back in the, you know, late 80s, early 90s. And so it's funny, man. But I've had some 
grew up with George Lynch. Uh, my mother's from Roanoke, Virginia. So I, I really developed my love and passion for basketball in Roanoke, Virginia. With, you know, grew, my grandmother's house was across the alley from Curtis Staples. George Lynch, George Lynch's mother and father went to high school with my mom. Uh, Troy Manns is one of my best friends, a point guard at George Mason and at Virginia Tech. So I could go on and on and on with guys who I, you know, ha- had real life experiences with in terms of my upbringing in the game. And I think those, for me, my relationships, I've always tried to make my relationships be transformative and not transactional. And so that comes from my grandfather on my dad's side, my grandfather on my mother's side, uh, my grandmother, um, both, all, all three of them, my, 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 my biological grandmother on my father's side passed away and my grandfather remarried. But my, my parents um, and just my circle, my circle was always about helping people and always about community. And if you needed to do something to help somebody, it wasn't about your personal benefit. You do it because it's the right thing to do. You do it because you, you really want to see others succeed. And your blessings will come because you're trying to help others. And so that's always how I've tried to live my life. Funny story, man. I just went to the, to the uh, pack mail, which is the you know, shipping place. And I walk in and there's a young guy behind the counter and he said, are you Merle Cole? And I said, I am. And he said, man, he came out from behind the counter to shake my hand and said, I just want to say thank you, man. I, I went to your basketball camp when I was a kid, and you're the reason I went to Clemson. And it made hmm. me feel good, man. It just made me feel like, damn, I've done something right in my life. You know, I didn't know this. I didn't know this young man. And, and for him to recognize me and say, you know, I, he appreciated me for just opening a, a pathway and showing him what, what could happen in his life, man, meant something to me. So I don't, you know, I don't really care what the system has done to me or how others who don't know me you know, want to categorize or put this scarlet letter on my back. I, they don't matter to me. What matters to me is the people whose lives I have touched in a positive way. And whether they walked away from me because of my situation or not, that doesn't have anything to do with me doing it because I thought it was the right thing to do. When we go to the point of you're trying to create a relationship, let's say you hear about, let, let's say that, the, you know, a, a, a superstar is coming along. How do you hear about that player? And then how do you go meet that player? And what do you do to try to become friends or, or build a relationship? There is no blueprint. Um, what, what you try to do is find some connectivity in some way. It, it could be I've had situations where I played with this young man's uncle um, or played against his dad or his high school coach and, and my friend are boys. You know, it's just... It just kind of depends on who the kid is, where he's from, and what those connective dots look like. Um, and then what you try to do is try to say, hey, listen, is it okay if I come and talk to you? And part of the pitch is feel when you're on the, on the, in the shoe, shoe game is, listen, I'm not an agent. I do not have to abide by NCAA rules. That's part of the pitch. Part of the pitch is because I'm, I'm arm's length away. I'm, I'm not a part of that NCAA system. I don't have to follow the guidelines, so I'm not an agent. So if I do something for you in terms of me providing you with product or helping mom get in bed, get a hotel room, or taking you guys to dinner, it's not a violation because I don't work for a school. And, and so all of those things kind of got thrown out of the window when these young, inexperienced, and, and very incompetent um, prosecutors brought this case. Um, and, and it was really interesting because it's kind of saying, listen, okay, I I didn't understand it at the time. Um, and then I got to, into some pretty deep conversations with my father who basically said, listen, man, this is how these guys create a profile for themselves. And so your life doesn't really mean anything to them. What you did doesn't really mean anything. It's just the fact that they can try to prove something so that they can go into the public sector and then create, you know, some value for themselves. So they go from making 150, 200 grand a year as a, as a government employee, now getting a million and a half to $2 million a year in the public sector because they brought down the goons, the monsters, the boogeyman, and network, and you're the boogeyman. And but it was interesting because I wasn't the boogeyman. I wasn't who they wanted. You know, I, they wanted high profile names. They wanted Sean Miller. They wanted Will Wade. So they said they wanted Rick Pitino. They wanted whoever else they thought I was going to be able to provide them. And I was like, listen, man, I'm not doing that. That's just not who I am. If you want to charge me with something, then charge me. But I'm not going to wear a wire. I'm not going to be on video tap setting up another man. And or another black man, whoever it was, for, for your benefit. So whatever you got to do to me, let's do it. And I was confident at the time, as I stated in the book, because I knew the evidence and the information that I had. Once people really got a chance to hear it, you go, wait a minute, he didn't do anything wrong. He was doing his job. And these, these people had a pre-existing relationship. And in many instances, these coaches are actually asking for the assistance, asking for the help. 
So how can I then defraud the same people that are asking for the help? In turn, having 190 million or 160 million or 80 million dollar relationship that they then renegotiate after we're convicted. Where is the fraud? Like none of this makes any sense, man. It's all just. But again, and I don't mean, and I've never been the kind of guy to throw racial, you know, stuff against the wall. But when you kind of look at this, guys, I kind of got to a place where I see, you know what, man? When when those in charge who are typically white can't control a situation, they criminalize it. And who do they criminalize? They criminalize black men. Because if that's not the case, then you'd see Sean Miller or Will Wade or Rick Pacino or anybody else involved in this going to jail like me. But because they have because they have monies, you know, they're 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 financially stable and able to fight this and stretch this thing out and we we don't have their financial backing, then yeah, we're the ones that that, that take the brunt brunt of the, the government's weight. Well, I, I think that's a, a key point. And the, the first word of the title of the book is black, black market. And the people who have been punished in this are overwhelmingly black. The head coaches who have made, you know, a millions of dollars since all this broke have been virtually untouched. What are your feelings when you watch Bill Self get a lifetime contract, when you see Will Wade coaching, Rick Patino coaching, uh, people like that? What 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 goes through your mind? It just it says, welcome, welcome to be a black man in, you know, in the United States of America. So you establish a relationship with the players. You're sponsoring their AAU team. Like you said, maybe you're helping mom and dad out with a hotel room, some meals on the road, some gas money. I've seen all the different stuff, right? You're trying to become friends. I think one of the key points in, in this entire case that I wrote over and over is the people, you, Christian, Jim Gatto, the defendants in the bribery and the uh, fraud case, you were giving people money. Yeah. Nobody took money no. from anybody. No. You gave people money. You gave contracts. You are not the the person that set them all up. Marty Blazer was a terrible financial advisor who stole money. He stole two point five million. These guys are giving out thousand bucks here, a holiday in room there, things like that. You gave people money, and you're in trouble. But by building, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that the, the interesting piece of all of that, uh, that man, is it wasn't my money, <laughs> and, right? And, and so if you if you read the book and with that. Basically, describe it as this. A Christian it was a young guy doing what most guys do who are trying to get established in the business. They don't have any money. They want to be able to take care of, of the, the people and the kids that they're recruiting. And if they don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. And they lose the kid, right? And so he, he came to me and asked me, did I think Adidas would help? And my response was, listen, man, not my money. I don't know what they'll say. All I can do is pass that on in a consultant role. I don't make those decisions. And that's exactly what I did. I passed that on. Um, to, to, to the folks at Adidas. They had some internal conversation because that it went up the food chain. They then had some conversations with those at the, at the University of Louisville and came back to me and said, yes, it's something we want to do to help. Now, now mind you, I, I've never met the Brian Bowen kid or, or his dad. I don't know these people. So it's not in terms of me, in terms of our conversation about building a relationship, this wasn't one of those situations. I don't know these people. Christian asked me. I asked the powers that be at Adidas. They asked the powers that be at, at Louisville. There was a consensus and a decision made. They called me back and said, yes, we want to do it. I called the guys that I was friends with who, who, who ran the AAU program because Jim called me and said, hey, man, uh, I need you to submit an invoice. And I was kind of like, okay, for what? Well, the way that we normally do it is that we normally send it to an AAU program and then they deal, okay. So I called those guys and said, hey, man, Adidas is sending you guys some money. Send it to Christian. That was my involvement. So let's let's back up on this specific bit. You're talking about Brian Bowen. Yes. Spring of spring of his senior year, University of Louisville, who had, has a hundred and something sixty million dollar contract with Adidas. Mm -hmm. Brian Bowen is available. The motivation. One of the things I've always found with college sports is they act like they got a deal with Adidas, and Adidas is going to just or Nike or Under Armour or whoever is just going to give you money and then hope that you're good. <laughs> They're just going to hope that a that Louisville gets really good and make and earns that money or Adidas is going to help facilitate and make sure you're good. And one way to do that is add a top 30 recruit by funneling money to the player's father who wanted the money. And the way you're talking about doing it, just so the people who don't know the story all the way is Christian Dawkins is 
running this kid. He's in charge. He says, if you give us, if I get the money to the dad, he can go to Louisville. When he gets out of Louisville, I'm going to be his agent or I'm going to represent him in some manner. Mm -hmm. He comes to you. You work as the middleman. Adidas, your bosses at Adidas agree. People at Louisville agree. They make the deal. You send it. You write an invoice out. You're the middleman. Mm -hmm. And guess who's busted? Now, Jim Gatto is also busted, but you're busted. Mm -hmm. Again, we're giving people money. But it is common for college coaches to be calling, texting, begging for help, everything, right? I mean, it it is common for coaches to have looked at you and said, this guy knows players. Can you help me, Merle? How many times did you hear that? Uh, That was a a reoccurring theme over my 15-plus years in the business. It was a reoccurring. I mean, it, it, it stretched from... Hey, man, can you put a kid that's already committed to us in a hotel room with a kid that we're trying to get? And that way I can show up at a hotel room like I'm visiting the kid that's already committed so I can recruit the kid that we want to get uh, to, hey, man, I've got this booster who's going to get this, who's going to get the family a house. Uh, I've got the, you know, so again, man, this is not, this is not uh, an uncommon practice because, you know, you get to a place where you start understanding, first of all, this is not amateur sport. It's not. And the government continues to allow the NCAA to operate under this facade. You can't have $550 million of, of dead coaching money floating around and call this amateur sport. There are guys who are not coaching who are being paid to the rate of half a billion dollars. You can't build $200 million of, of football and basketball facilities on campuses and say this is amateur sport. You can't. Amateur sports is when you are washing cars, having raffles and hot dog plates so you can order uniforms and have enough money and gas for the bus trip to your game. That's amateur sport. But they continue to allow them to to to, to operate under this facade. And again, it's this this NIL, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get to that in a second, but this NIL is a band-aid on a bullet wound and it's and, and excuse my language, but it's BS. It's a bunch of BS. Yeah. Because I still have to I, ask you, can I use my name? Can I use my image and can I use my likeness for my own? I have to ask you. And if that's not slavery, and I don't know what it is. Guardrails, they call it. Guard, guardrails. <laughs> yeah. Right. Stop regu- yeah. They can't help themselves. They just can't. <laughs> Go ahead, Pat. Uh, no, I, I'm just quoting from the book there. I mean, to be clear, and that's one thing this book does, is, is pull back the curtain most of the way. So that if anyone thinks there's such a thing as a clean, big-time program, they need to wake up and smell the donkey right. Somewhere along the line, even the so-called cleanest programs has some dirt if you look close enough. So that's the way business gets done why why i mean i guess why did it take two decades worth of this stuff and for the for this federal scandal to finally blow the lid off well kind of blow the lid off things although not really for this all to become this public and then for eventually for it to, to to reach a point of having a name image and likeness i mean you got you got a uh an excerpt in the book there merle about Anthony Davis getting $10,000 from you to his family because they were in hard times, but it was for a T-shirt that would be perfectly legal today. Right. I just, I'm interested in your thoughts on how this thing has evolved. Well, again, it's, it's – and I mentioned the whole Norby Walters situation um, back in the 80s. It wasn't a crime for him, but it's a crime for me. And so it's, 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 it's an interesting take, but – Blow the doors off the lid is really a, it's funny to me because, again, they thought they were going to have all these high profile names and hauling all these guys off. And when everybody's like, listen, man, I'm not I'm not doing that. Or what are you looking for? What are you trying to accomplish? Because there's no federal legislation that says you can't give a kid money. There's none. Because if that was the case and you had a son in college and you gave him money, you'd be breaking federal law. It's ridiculous. And so you come up with these, you, you have to make it fit into something and it just, it doesn't fit. But again, when you can manipulate the system and these judges and, and these young prosecutors have a, have similar backgrounds in terms of their Harvard and Yale backgrounds and they want to see these young guys and young women succeed, then again, you don't mean anything. You're, you're, the truth doesn't mean anything. And that's the part that was really frustrating for me going through the process is, wait a minute, man, you you won't allow the truth to be to, to, to be viewed in plain light. And then, you know, no disrespect to what you guys do, but the media jumped on this and turned turned me into the most villainous character to ever step on the face of the earth. And I became, and I say it in the book, I wasn't just toxic, I was radioactive in, in, in terms of how I was viewed. And I know the good I've done in this space. And I know the people that I've touched and tried to assist. And so, but I'm not going to get on the soapbox about that. It's just, it's interesting now that no federal legislation has, has 
has been passed, but now all of a sudden the same thing that we did is now allowed. So no law has no law has changed, but I'm going to prison and what we did is now now legal, so to speak, but there's been no law to change anything. So how was it then illegal in the first place? So it's just no. Well, they they care because they they still want to keep these guardrails and go to sleep. They care, they they care um, because they don't want to they don't want to have a free and fair market for these young men and young women who are generating all this money for for for, uh, for their students. So one of the one of the things you were convicted of is fraud, right? And and it involved Louisville, and so and and the other schools were there were other uh, obviously defendants of different frauds, and so you have a situation, you have head coaches assistant coaches, administrators, probably asking for help mm-hmm. wide open what you do. Yep. Everybody in grassroots basketball knows what sneaker companies do asking for the help. Yep. You provide the help. Yes. You send them a player yes. that scores baskets, sells tickets, sells t-shirts, gets NCA tournament shares, television ratings, they make more money. Mm-hmm. The ADs get more money. Yes. The coaches get more money. Yes. And then they're now saying you defrauded that person when you were actually their business partner doing exactly what they begged you to do. In fact, you didn't do enough because every I know one thing about college coaches, they're greedy. Mm-hmm. So they want more players. Yeah. <laughs> no one ever said, you sent me enough players, Merle. I don't believe that that conversation ever occurred. Not, not it was the, the Bill then, Self text to TJ Gastola. Just got to get some real guys. Right. Right. Yeah. Just got to get some real guys. And yet the fraud is you. Look, I'm not asking you to make sense of the nonsense, but what, <laughs> what I mean, when you first heard that you were guilty or getting charged with defrauding someone begging for your help. Yeah. And that's why I felt good about going to court. That's why I felt good about, hey, once the information comes out and I'm able to release these text messages or play these phone calls that you have obviously wiretapped and listened to, then it's, a, it's, it's not even a case. But when the judge says, hey, you're not going to talk about four black kids in my courtroom and you're going to eliminate my ability to put any text message or any phone call in front of the jury, that w- that basically proves my point, then yeah, I'm a, I'm a sitting duck because it turns into a created narrative, and they get to basically pound on me with this the only narrative that the jury gets to hear, and it's it's just a, it, it, if we really talk about having a justice system, this ain't it. I'll let Pat uh, just to reiterate that point. The FBI said we have your playbook and we're going to blow this open. The prosecutors had this big press conference. Everyone remembers it, mm-hmm. and I remember saying. You know, if they really went after this, there won't be a college basketball coach employed anymore. Right. They're all dead. They're all done. Mm-hmm. When they got to court, bigger fish could have been busted. And the prosecution fought to keep recordings that would incriminate in the word. And I, I hate to use the word because I don't think any of these guys are criminals, but incriminate more high profile coaches just because it, if they did, the truth of what guys like Merle Code do would have come out and it would have weakened the case against you. So they literally said, we'll take a conviction on a half-truth of a guy you probably never heard of rather than blow up a guy you have heard of and would matter to the, 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 that would lead Sports Center. Mm -hmm. That's what happened in that courtroom. It was unbelievable watching the defense argue, please play the tapes, please run the transcripts. And I, you were heated in that courtroom. Like you were, I watched you every day and you were tortured over there. Fighting mad. And and, yeah, I was fighting mad. And then it got to the point where here was a really interesting part of the trial. One of the attorneys, and I don't remember, it was either my dad or Steve Haney said to, I want to say it was the compliance guy. He said, so tell me when you called the government to tell them you were defrauded. And it was objection, <laughs> objection, objection, because the government called Louisville to say, hey, you've been defrauded. <laughs> the government called them and called Kansas and called Miami and called NC State and said, hey, you've been defrauded. What are they, what are they gonna say? No, we're not. Okay, whatever <laughs> you say, right? No, we're part of the crime. Exactly. <laughs> so you got it wrong. Yeah. And so they manufactured yeah. this entire story 
about somebody being defrauded and they were able to prove their case because they only put half of the truth in, in front of the jury. And again, man, I, it's really, really unfortunate that the butt of, of, of this, this prosecution is nine black guys and a white guy who you feel good. And I feel sorry for Jim. You know, I, I, I've grown up a black man my whole life, so I've seen a whole lot of stuff that wasn't right. Jim is, you know, a good guy. And he was doing his job. And he got thrown into so that, so that we couldn't come back and say it was anything racial. He was the lone white man that had this up. And it's really... And he gets, he gets sued on the back end, too, by Kansas. Right. Kansas sued him for a million bucks. <laughs> yeah. A million bucks. How many players did Jim Gatto send to the Kansas University Jayhawks? It's for, he was a very valuable person to Kansas, it's for, was he not? It's a public show. It's to say, oh, we had nothing to do with this. And again, it's everybody trying to cover their own ass and be, you know, again, it's, it's, it's a self-serving business and it's a self it's a self-preservation kind of kind of situation, right? They, do you think they, look, every time there's an NCA scandal, the, the black assistant is the first guy no, to get hit. No question. Okay, we know that. We know that the the black AAU coach mm-hmm. is the is the is the negative, and the often white high school coach is the hero. Yeah. Okay, I had to learn that fight that too. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Do you think that they like? Do you think they only wanted black assistants, or do you think they just didn't have the courage to take on the high powered white coach, or do you think they realized this case is so weak? That if we go, like, I mean, look, these are prosecutors trying to get attention. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. well, if you string up some of these big names, yeah. they why did they stop? Think, why did they stop? So I think what I, what I honestly think happened is once we weren't willing to play their game, um, and wear wires and 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 uh, have our phone calls taped and all that other crap. I think once they figured that part out, one, and then they started going through the same schools that they called to say you've been defrauded. And I think some of those same folks said, hey, you're going to hurt us in the process. If you continue down this path, you're going to hurt us. And so I think the focus then uh, shrunk from this big, broad, massive investigation to, okay, well, we've already made this press conference and we got to save face in some way. So people that, that aren't willing to help us, then we're just going to make sure we, we nail them to the wall. You just talked a little bit about your frustration about not getting some of that evidence into court. Uh, and you mentioned in the book. I don't, mean, Pat, I don't mean to interrupt you, but not some. No, no they, yeah, they lost almost every. <laughs> right. I don't think so, you guys want a motion no. or if you did, it wasn't many. No. Well, I think yeah. one, motion, one motion and it was in, it was inconsequential. And and you said in the book here that if you if you really wanted to, you know, the the, the book actually you said tip of the iceberg, and if you really wanted to, you could uh, you could pull back the curtain further. Uh, why didn't you use some of that evidence in the book? Well, I think it was a number of reasons. For me, one, it was all I then do is as you as you stated, Dan, a lot of these black assistant coaches will be the guys who take the brunt of the brunt of the, the heat or whatever it is I've got to say. And I realized that. And so this system is set up so the black head co- black assistant coaches go into black neighborhoods with black kids and bring them to the white coaches and white schools so the white folks can make money. That's how the system works. And if I start, you know, peeling back those curtains, then all I'm doing is allowing these same white coaches to then point the finger at these black assistant coaches who then lose their jobs and their families are impacted. And then what kind of man would I be for doing that? Really, you opened the book with uh, with Zion Williamson, uh, actually another Zion who's class of 2029. And that was actually a pretty clever juxtaposition there that that was like, oh, my gosh, you know, it, it was a bit of an eye opener. I'll let the readers get to that when they get the book. But but you were integrally involved with Zion Williamson from the time he first started to blow up because you're from that part of South Carolina. He was from that part of South Carolina. You met Lee Anderson. Uh, Lee Anderson asked you for help financially very early on. You were part of his whole process. Uh, Clemson looked like they had Zion or thought they did, and they did a lot to help try to get Zion. And then all of a sudden, he goes to Duke. Uh, could you just kind of walk through the the Zion uh, relationship and how you saw that, his, his recruitment unfold? Yeah, so I was at a – I was a regular kind of on football weekends. Um, you know, 
down there. There's something to do. Obviously, the atmosphere down there is incredible. You know, it's a time chase me to go back to my old stomping grounds. And, and I had a good relationship with the staff. And, and so just happened to be down there. And a couple of one of my couple of my teammates are going to be down there that weekend. My, my, you know, from, from, from our uh, pretty good runs when we were playing. Um, and so it's always good to catch up with those guys. And uh, one of the alumni is a, is a friend of mine. He has a tailgate section, you know, that kind of thing. So it was just, it was a, it was a really, it's always a really cool thing to be able to take my, my wife and my son down to, you know, to, to, work, to where I played and, and get a chance to walk campus and talk about where I lived. And, you know, and so it, it's always a really good time to enjoy it. And like I said, we had friends and, and then we were going to meet down there. They had a, you know, a bunch of recruits in um, for this particular weekend. And, you know, they feed the kids and then the kids go play. Um, so I go down and watch him play and saw this kid and man, he's, he's, he's not in shape, but goodness gracious, he's got some stuff with him. You know, he's super athletic. He's got great hands. Um, he, he, uh, he's got wonderful instincts. He, he sees the floor. I mean, you know, and this is in pickup. So, <clears throat> but he's in high school and he's playing against the, the kids, you know, the kids, some of the kids on Clemson's team and then some of the other recruits. So you get a chance to see him against some guys that are more experienced and more physical, but he's, not only holding his own, he's, 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 he's one of the better ones on the floor. You know what I mean? And so you kind of go, wait a minute, this, this kid's got something with him. Um, and so I had some conversations with the staff and they were kind of saying, Hey, listen, this kid has a chance to be really special. And we think, uh, we think we got a shot at it. And I was going to say, okay, well, why do you think you have a shot at it? You know, and so it kind of went through the backstory of the kid being from Marion, which is, you know, a couple of hours from, you know, from, from where we are um, in the Greenville Farmberg area. And but then moving up to Spartanburg to go to, to a prep school and his stepdad actually playing at Clemson back in the late seventies. Didn't stay, I think he stayed a year or two um, and transferred out, but was was a player there. And so oh, okay, so there's some ties, there's some connectivity to the school. And then again, after just kind of standing outside, running my mouth and talking and laughing and uh, and and again, just ask me, are you the guy I've been looking for? <laughs> really? Why? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so and he said, listen, man, we're kind of navigating this whole. You know, we got people coming at us from all kinds of angles, and we want somebody that's going to tell us the truth about how this thing works. And I've heard you as, you know, upfront and honest dude. So, would you mind? I was like, absolutely, I have no issue. And that's kind of what I wanted to make sure is relayed in the book is listen, this wasn't about money. They didn't have any money to pay me. He was asking for my help to navigate a, a process to eat young kids and young black kids and their families alive. It eats them up. And they get taken advantage of by putting themselves in bad situations by signing bad contracts with bad folks or, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I had one kid, I don't know his name, name, but he signed a lifetime marketing deal. What are you doing? You know what I mean? So, right. Yeah. And so, so that, but that's why, again, there has to be some protections and walls built around these folks for people who aren't just trying to take from them. And that's why our situation was really frustrating because we're trying to get. So let's take this situation, right? This system. I think people looked and said, okay, my, my, uh, my uh, kids enter in the music business. Mm -hmm. Movies. You go, man, that's cutthroat. Right. You need an agent. That's the, the people will stab you in the back. They will steal from you. They will do this. For some reason, we've created a thing in basketball that there's these benevolent people that just, you just usher through and it all works out. Because the high school coach is, is like Father Flanagan. Yeah. Nobody wants anything, right? We've created this illusion. No. There are. What, how hard is it for a kid, even a talented player, to navigate this system? Because I always say with NCAA rules, there's no NCAA rules if you're rich. There's no, there's no NCAA rules. Because uh, everything, everything that a, 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 even a middle-class parent does for their kid is all of a sudden an NCAA violation if anyone else does it. Help them with their SAT. Get SAT prep, right? Get them into this school. Mm -hmm. Get them this. Extra hotel room, extra training, all that. Like, can you make it in basketball these days uh, unless you're just some ungodly talent? Listen, this, that whole varsity blue scandal was, was, was incredible to me. You've had, and I, again, this is not to be on the racial kick, man, but you've had white parents for eons that have sent to school money, uh, and I mean millions and millions of dollars of creating an endowment and then all this other stuff and their kids, nowhere in the world could they have gotten into that school. But because mommy and daddy or grandparents gave the school a million dollars, they get in. It's been going on forever. But that's, and that's not a federal crime. But all of a sudden, they make it one. It's, it, it, it's beyond me, right? So, no. 
if you're poor in this situation, um, there's a lot of rules and regulations because those are the kids that generate the most money because those typically are the kids who have the most ability because they're fighting to get out of the situation. Most kids who, who, who come from uh, affluent backgrounds, they don't have that same drive and, 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 and hunger to change their, change their station in life because they've already reached the station in life they're comfortable with and that they like. A lot of these young men and young women come from situations that you couldn't fathom. Like I had a kid, my, when I was a director at Nike, I, my staff went to see a kid, oddly enough, ended up going to the University of Kansas. And they came back to me and said, I have never seen a kid living in those kind of conditions before. And I said, what do you mean? He said, listen, it was a house that had no furniture in the house. And it was four kids that slept on the floor. And they were sharing like a can of tuna. Mm. And this kid is one of the best players in the country. And that's how he's living. And if I go help that kid and feed him or give him some money to change his station, I'm a federal criminal. Something is wrong with the system. It is. So Lee Anderson was was not doing well financially with Zion, no, right? I mean, he, he needed help. You gave him some help. You still and yeah. he and Sharonda mm-hmm. used the system, right? I mean, they they hey, make us coaches, give us our team, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and and they progressively got better taken care of as things went along. As Zion's star rose, it's time for him to commit. Can you? Just kind of relay how that went down. Well, again, uh, he committed like right when all the the, the, the happened with us, right? So it was, <laughs> it was kind of simultaneous. Like it was within days, of, if I'm not mistaken, of his commitment in terms of when we got arrested and all that other stuff happening. And from my understanding, all the stuff that happened to me spooked him. Um, and so, the, it, it, but I will say, Duke was always that kid's dream school. Yeah, and you mentioned that. Am I, am I getting to know the kid and be around the kid and his family? He loved Duke. Now, again, he really liked Clemson, and Lee was, you know, Lee was saying, listen, he is going to go to school where he wants to go. He wasn't pushing him to go anywhere. But he was saying, hey, I'd like him to be close at home, you know, good league. He'll be the guy there. You know, he'll be the focal point of the team. Um, but it's his decision. And it's him and, and whatever he decides to do, and I'm going to support it. And that was the conversation. Well, when the stuff happened to me and my ties to the, to, to the school, I think it spooked him and it made the decision a little easier for him to go to Duke. But that's not to say he wouldn't have gone to Duke anyway. Um, right. But yes, but, I, I, was, I was intimately involved in that to, from going to, uh, and when you say money, I want to clarify. Um, if you read the book, you'll understand it was $100. Right. Yeah. It was a hundred dollars. Like I literally came home and told my wife, Hey, I went to the ATM. Lee was asking for some grocery money. Um, cause he was out of work. And I was like, Hey, I gave him a hundred dollars. And she was like, okay, no problem. You know what I mean? And so I, I went, cause people have this perception of when you say I gave him some money, like it's always, Hey, I gave him a hundred grand. I gave him 200. Right. It was a hundred dollars. And I'm, 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 <laughs> and that was my money. Yeah. I, I gave him a hundred, a hundred dollars of my money. No problem. Adidas wants to give a kid in his family a hundred thousand dollars and I go to jail. Right. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Roughly how much money were you paid a year? I don't have to ask you your salary. We gentlemen here, but roughly how much money were you making a year in your various jobs? Uh, I remember Jim Gatto was making $129,000. Yeah, like right. So I think my, when I first started, I think I was at around 50 to 75 grand. And then by the time I finished, bonuses included, I was probably around 165. Right. That, and that's that's 25 years of work. Yeah. You're making 100. Right. Nobody is yeah. making it's millions a, of dollars here. You're not no, flying in it, jets. No. This it's is a very good living, but you were not good. suddenly. Yeah. No, and a, you worked 100 hours a week. You no, earned it. Right. Yeah. I mean, so that's and that's the part that, you know, again, when you're not inside of the space, you don't understand that it's a 365 day, 24 hour a day job. If your phone rings at three o'clock in the morning, you're expected to answer the phone because somebody is in need of something. Somebody wants to talk to you about something. And then. When you sat in the seat that I sat in at Nike, not only do they want to talk to you, they want to see. So if, if I've got my hands on seven or eight of the top 20 kids in the country, mom and dad want to see me. It's not good enough to be on a Zoom call or, or talk. Like, I need to be there. And I was, this is pre-COVID, but you need to be there. So you're talking 230 to 240 days a year of being in the air traveling somewhere. So it takes a toll on you mentally, physically. Uh, your family has to be super understanding of, of, of your schedule. 
because you're always in somebody's living room or always in the gym. Um, and so, no, it, certainly it's a comfortable living, you know, but it is not, it is not the I can retire to my role kind of life. It's not, it's not the coach's salaries where, hey, if they fire Sean Miller, okay, great. This man has made $4 million on average for the past 15 years. So if he never works another day in his life, so what? Well, that's not our situation. And that's the same with Book Richardson and, uh, you know, some of the other assistant coaches that got Tony Bland, yeah, too. the assistants. Yeah. Yeah. Are, are not making $4 million a year. No. You know, and, right. and now they've, they've got an act, you know, a criminal record that they have to mm-hmm. confront and deal with. Yes. Just, just to clarify, I mean, for people to know and understand, like, as you mentioned in there, that it was, it's not uncommon for a top flight kid to have an arrangement to get $100,000 from somebody, uh, whatever the, wherever that may come from. Out of the top 50 players in the country in a given year, how many are getting taken care of to the tune of five or six figures? Of the top 50, you're probably looking at, I'd probably say anywhere from 50 to 70% of those kids in some way. Now, now let's, uh-huh. I want to be clear when I say this. Not every kid is getting 100 grand or 150 grand. And this is, again, pre, pre-NIL deals when they can sign. Right. Sign sponsors, yes. Right. So th- that happens in various ways. It is, hey, I'm going to get your mom a job. And this is a booster. This is a booster who owns a company, who is a, a huge donor to the school. And he, he this kid, you know, is, is, is highly touted in the coaching staff saying, hey, this is a kid we got to have. So the, the company gives mom a job for 75, 80 grand a year. And she never has to show up at work. Right. So, mm-hmm. so, yep. so no, they're not giving the kid 100 grand because mm-hmm. mom's got a job. Yeah, right. Mama doesn't have a job. She's on paper, but she doesn't really have a job. Yeah. It's the same yeah. thing. You got agents or financial people who are footing the bill, and so it never touches the kid. They're just giving the money to the mom and dad with the, with the expectation of them signing a signing a an agency contract. Same same thing in the financial world. They, they create these loans that never have to be repaid. So it's on paper and it looks legal and and, and it's done by the book, and but they never have to repay that loan. Somebody else will repay the loan, you know. And so it's done in various ways. I mean, I, I it's been prepaid uh, debit cards. You pay debit cards, it's got 25 grand on this one, 10 grand on this one, five grand on this one. And so spend it as you like. Um, there's been there's monthly cycles that go to the AAU coach or go to the high school coach or go to his uncle. Or again, man, it happens in various ways and it's been going on forever. And but when you really look at it, the coaches have to do it. If they don't get that kid, they lose their job. And so it's a cycle where you're saying, okay, this black assistant coach has to bring this kid in. Or he doesn't have any value to me as as a recruiter because that's all most of these black coaches are viewed at, which is the reason you see the small percentages of black coaches at the NCAA level is because all are viewed as as recruiters. They can't coach the game, but you can sure go get me some black people. What um you told some stories about uh, you told a story about Zion Williamson first time you saw him. Who were uh, who are some other first time players you saw? that you walked in a gym that maybe they're in seventh grade or maybe they're in sophomore. And you just said, you didn't know how good a guy was. And he said, Oh God, this guy is going to be LeBron. I remember the first time I saw LeBron James going, I, I, I don't know what, this is the greatest player I've ever seen at six, 15 years old. Right. Tell us a, a one or two of those guys that you yes. just said. Uh, LeBron is definitely one of them. Um, um, Anthony Davis is another one. Uh, Carmelo Anthony is another one. Uh, as up and down as his, career, you know, Dwight Howard actually was one of the, when you first saw him, you go, first, you know, (laughs) (laughs) know, to be be that big with that kind of body, he wasn't overly skilled, but he could run and he could jump and he had good hands. So when you see a kid at that size, that that kind of stuff with him, naturally, you know, with some work, um, I I think that the other guy I would put in that category was Kevin. Kevin Garnett, the first time I saw him, he was probably in the seventh grade, maybe. And I'm like I said, I'm three, I'm two or three years older than Kevin. And funny enough, man, we had our own we, we scrimmaged him. He was in the he was I think he was in the ninth grade my senior year, if I'm not mistaken. And we scrimmaged them because they weren't on our schedule to play during the regular season. And we had a big guy on our team named um Mike, and I'll leave him out because I don't want to I don't want him to embarrass me. <laughs> Mike was a really good player, ended up playing at St. John. And Kevin was a freshman. Mike was a junior. I was a senior. 
Now we were we were beating to Kevin Steen by forty or fifty points. I mean, I had I had seven or eight college players on my high school team. You know, I mean, we had Shamar Williams is you know was on my high school team. Mike went to St. John's on my high school team. You know what I mean? So I had some really good players: Clarence Brazil, A.T. Jeff and and, and, and uh, Eric with the North Greenville, Pat with Mars. We still had we had a bunch of guys, but we're beating about forty or fifty. But Kevin is kicking Mike's. And, you know, and we're we're picking at Mike during the game. And again, we're up forty or fifty. We're picking at Mike. Damn, man, he, he you know he's a freshman. He's kicking your ass. You know I mean? so, <laughs> and so it's pretty funny because Mike was pissed, but Kevin was so skilled for his size. And at that time, he was probably six seven, right? Um, but he was long, lanky. Um, you know, he had really high jump shots and couldn't block it. I mean, he just had a lot of stuff with him. You know, man, this this dude is unbelievable. You know, and so. You don't see a lot of six, seven guys coming out of my my my, my backyard, right? And so he was he was a freak of nature. But so yeah, those are those are some guys kind of off the top of my head. And you kind of go, Chris Paul. Chris Paul was another um, that I that I saw when he was really really young. It was his instincts. It was his 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 quick twitch muscles are unlike anybody else's I've ever seen. His ability to go from a standstill position laterally to go left or right was the best I've ever seen. And so I think there's a there's an art and a skill to evaluating guys. Um, the other guy that I showed you the first time I saw that I was in awe of, I didn't see him until late was Tim Duncan. Tim and I played together in on the ACC All-Star team and went down to Brazil. Um, and I'd seen him. Obviously, we played against each other and I'd seen him. But I didn't really get to see him beat Tim Duncan until we were in Brazil. And he was playing against grown men. And these were good. This is a good Brazilian national team we were playing against. He was man amongst men and we were still boys, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know? and so we, fast forward, we played against him my junior year and I got, I heard, I put my knee up by then. So my senior year is when we played him again. And, you know, that's when we had been number two in the country for a while and they were number one in the country. We had some good big, Harold, Harold James and Tom Wiley were good big and he carried turbot. Like we had good big men with the play and we were physical, we were a physical team and we were they were, I was like, beat him up, get him off the box. And, you know, Tim doesn't say much. But when he started saying that shit's not going to work, it was really funny because that's just kind of, that's the most you're going to get out of him. He's going to kick your ass and not say much. <laughs> <laughs> that's Tim Duncan. <laughs> um, I just got like two questions left. The first one, when you are in the business of finding great talent, What's the feeling like and what's the reaction when you discover somebody, when you see somebody? Like you mentioned Patrick Beverly in the book. But when when you are in on the ground floor with a guy, what's the feeling like for you? It, you, you go through – there's some mixed emotions because you don't know how it's being received. You know, again, man, some people, because they're so protective of you, – because you're not the first person to interact with that kid and try to influence them in some way, Right. Whether it be positive or negative, you're not the first person. And so they don't know you. So they don't know which way you're trying to sway them. And neither does their mom or their dad or their coach or, you know, high school coach or AAU coach. Like, you're new and you're new entering into that seat. And so it's always kind of like, okay, how was it received? What did you guys think? You know, what could I do better? What do I need to explain more? You know, uh, sometimes it's a background. It's like, who are you? Where did you play? Do you know what you're talking about? Um, uh, well, well, so-and-so said they would do X, Y, Z. Why are you not saying that? You know, and so... Or this company said that I could do this. You know, I had, you know, you have it's, it's situations where, well, my, my travel team coach said that, uh, you know, and I'm using this arbitrarily, but uh, one shoe company is going to give us a hundred grand and you may go, you may go to the AU coach and say, listen, I've got 40 for you. You know, and so you have to navigate all of those different emotions when you kind of get in, in, in feelings um, and trying to really establish a rapport with a kid. And, it's, and some of it's just being persistent. Some of it is just continuing to show up and see if I can be of, 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 of some use. Like, what do you need help with? No, I can't do that, but maybe I know somebody that can't. You know, and, and it could it's little things. It could be, hey, man, this family's roof just collapsed. Do you know some roofers? Yeah, my cousin is a roofer. And I call my cousin and say, hey, man, get your ass over there and fix these people's roof. You know what I mean? So, I, I need to build a relationship with these folks. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, and so it, it's really just, again, trying to find how it can be of service and trying to be an asset to that family in some way. And that's how the business really operates. And like I said, I've, my relationships have not been transactional. They just haven't. Like, this was not about me making money or taking money. Um, this was about me trying to help and assist families in need for the most part. 
um, to get to try to change their station in life because the system didn't treat them fairly. So let's create a system where it does. These kids have immense value beyond, well, they were getting nothing at the time, but they had value. Sure. And their value, in, if there was a true open market, they would have made money. Also, I'll say one thing, you don't have the answer because it's, we'll just move on, but one more, more point to make. One thing this this trials exposed were how many people were frauds. So they say, I'm helping, I'm the one who's helping the kid. And the kid doesn't even, he doesn't even like that dude. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, oh, I'm going to get a hundred grand. And that guy's got a $10,000 offer. It's not like you're a free agency in the NBA where you trust mm -hmm. that, yes, the Mavericks have offered six million and the and the Lakers have offered seven. You've got to navigate this. There's a, guy, there's a bunch of swindlers out there I mean, trying to trick you because you're walking in with Nike or Adidas and you've got the big pockets. Well, sometimes in, in this day, and, and, and I'll say this, man, that's even head coaches. Like I've had kids who've been offered eight grand a month from a head coach to come to their particular school. And the kids show up on campus and he pulls the dick. Like, nope, not going to do it. You're here. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so you have to understand the landscape of recruiting and understand that these kids are pieces of meat and they use them up and throw them away. You know, some of these kids aren't academically qualified to go to these schools, right? You need an 1100 and a 3.5 on your SAT to enter into this school as a regular student. But if you got a 2.0 and you got a 701 <laughs> as an athlete, guess what? We're going to get you in. And then what they do is they stick them in these bullshit majors, uh, coaching education, parks, recreation, and tourism management, physical ed, just to keep them eligible. And then when they're done playing, they send them to the wolves. And here's the part that really bothers me. These kids want to go back to some of these schools um, or to the alumni. Yeah, don't have time for them. This kid's got a busted up back, neck, feet, uh, hips, feet. Who pays that kid's insurance bills for the rest of his life? School doesn't. But he's broken his body up for you. And made you guys do gobs of money, and then you throw them to throw them to the world um, as if he never really meant anything. And that's how the system really treats people. No, that that was a great point you made in the book about that. I thought about you know that the bad majors, the sham prep schools, you know that are sending kids to college that are unprepared. So well, you don't want to rat people out. I guess I don't know if that's the term, but let me say this: if you if you had a kid say, "I can go to any school in the country," where should I go? Who would you say? Go play for this guy. You know what, man? That, that question has been posed to me a lot. And not only was it school related, it was agent related. What agent should I go to? What school should I go to? I've had guys tell me, man, you just tell me where to go. That's where I'm going to go. So listen, man, I'm not doing it. If I have a true and genuine relationship with you and your family, that's the last thing I'm going to do. I made my decision to go to school and I had my ups and downs, but I couldn't blame anybody for pushing me in that direction. I made my own decision. And so you need to make your own decision. And if it doesn't work out, because that, that'll damage the relationship um, in the long run for me. If I tell you to go to a particular school and you get there and the coach is a butthole and you're not playing and the style doesn't fit you, and blah, 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 blah. Now you're looking at me like, man, you did this to me. That won't be me. All right. Well, th that, that's a mature and excellent answer, but I'm looking for <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's the truth. And I wish I had, I wish I could say go. So you, is there, but is there somebody that like, I mean, we're, we're pretty, you're basically saying you could, if, if you wanted, you could dish whatever's deemed dirt on virtually every school going. Who, what coach, is there, do you just not want to name a coach that you trust? More than others, or is there a coach that you man? And when you say trust, that's a real loose term. Yeah, <laughs> because <laughs> this is basketball, right? Because and, and, and football is worse, right? So, yeah. so I really want to talk about like I have a kid now who was one of the top defensive players in the country, and his mom and dad and I talk every every other day. And school coaching staff, blah blah blah, made a bunch of promises to the kid, and mom is hot because they haven't fulfilled any of the things they said they were going to do. I didn't tell them to go there. So it's not a situation where I'm yeah. at fault for this. So I don't, you know, I, so I can't say, I can't trust it being as a, as a loose term. I can say there's some guys that I really think are wonderful basketball coaches in terms of how they operate their X's and O's and how they change their systems and styles um, to, 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 to meet the, 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 the talent pool that they have. There's some guys that I think are wonderful recruiters that can't coach a little bit. And they'd be, they'd be good guys to have, um, you know, uh, bring a kid in because they know the kid is going to be taken care of. But in terms of learning the game, this probably in the for you. So there's all these different dynamics, man, that go into a staff. And so, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I have one I could throw. All right. Good answer. <laughs> <man>. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, and it, I tell you, well, you had some some eye opening stories about playing for Rick Barnes that are in the book. I'll, I'll just some people can can read that uh, and your 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 different varying emotions uh, about Rick. Very uh, very moving. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, um, but yeah, well, let me say this before you. Before we, yeah, I hope that the book, in terms of you guys reading it, I hope the book caused you to think. I hope that the book caused you to laugh. I hope that the book caused you some angst, and I hope it pissed you off. And so I was looking for, and, I, and lastly, I hope it caused you some understanding. And so I think, I think that for me, those are all of the emotions that I was looking for when we were trying to put this book together. We wanted you to think, we wanted you to understand, uh, we wanted you to laugh, and we wanted to piss you off. And so if I, yeah. I got all of those. Pretty succeeded. Uh, Pretty succeeded. Yeah. Then, uh, you checked all the boxes for yeah. sure. No. So all right, my last question, when you get through this ordeal, what's next for Merle Cubb? I don't know. Um, and that's the, that's the, the wonderful thing about, you know, kind of hopefully having the Lord help me reinvent myself in some capacity. You know, it could be, a, a, a media situation where obviously the, the, the podcast opportunity may present itself. I don't know. Um, I've, I've certainly, I've been in talks with um, some folks about this being a movie you know, or a scripted series because they thought the stories were compelling and things that they've never heard of before. And I think the thing that has helped me kind of get through this is that I'm, I'm a unicorn. And I say that not, not as being a special person. I said it in my experiences being uh, of a special nature, right? Nobody has ever played the game at the level I've played it, had the interaction with the kinds of players I've had interaction with, worked for two of the top five shoe companies in the world, and gone through the process in the legal system, and now have written a book to really start talking about it. There's nobody that's done that before. So it gives me some, um, and I told Dan, it gives me some sunlight in, in some dark days, man, that says, you know what? When I get through with this, there'll be some opportunities because nobody can talk about the things I can talk about. You're also a talented guy and, a, and, a, and someone who's carrying themselves the right way. I would, I would add that always, always, always have. And I think that's why you lasted so long and had so much respect in the business because the way you carried yourself in a very, very tough business, uh, for, for so many years, let me just ask you, this is my last question. You are, you're a father, you're a husband, your son, you very tight family. You got a young child at home. You're facing nine months in federal prison. How do you prepare for that? What, what, you're going through a very unique time. How do you prepare for that? I think uh, you're not a criminal. <laughs> according, I mean, according to the government, I, I know according to the government, but yeah, you're not a criminal. You're a regular guy. How do you do with this? Unfortunately, the, the society has labeled me one, and I'm something that I have to face and confront, and it's something that I have to learn to deal with. How do I deal with it? I deal with it by making sure that I'm, I'm, I'm grounded in my, in my faith. I have an incredible support system in terms of my wife um, and my mother and father, um, my extended family in terms of my godparents and cousins um, and, and, and close, close family, families um, that, that I don't even consider friends. I consider them extended family. And so she is, she has her good days and bad days in dealing with this. But we tried to prepare the best we could in terms of making sure that our our household situations are taken care of, that, you know, we're not in this situation, as I mentioned earlier, I'm not a rich guy, but I'm also not a guy that's, that's worried about feeding my family tomorrow. And so financially, we're okay. We're, you know, certainly always want to be better, but not we're not we're not in a bad place. And so this book has has been a an opportunity, not just from a cathartic space in terms of me getting some of this to release some of this, but it's also created some opportunities that I never probably would have jumped into had this book never come to life. Um, so I'm do I'm dealing with it on the positive side saying, I think that continue to have these dialogues, you know, ha having this dialogue with guys like you and Pat, um, you know, and, and really spreading the truth and getting the message of truth to, to the masses will help open more doors. And so I'm hopeful that I can, can Continue to do that um, once this is behind me, you know, just just trying to make sure that I'm continue to be the same person I was. I'm not going to stop being me and I'm not going to apologize for doing my job. And that's, been, that's been the frustrating piece um, in terms of some of these interviews and requests. Because the first thing that comes across to some of them is, has he accepted responsibility? <laughs> it's responsibility for what? For doing my job and, and challenging a corrupt system? I'm not, I'm not going to apologize for that. 
I'm not going to apologize for doing my job and doing it well. I'm just not. And and if, and if anybody's looking for that apology, I'm the wrong person to talk to. Well, Merle, we appreciate you giving us this much time. We wish you the best of luck going forward to you and your family. And uh, we look forward to talking to you uh, hopefully sooner than nine months. I think you only got to do 85% of that. Maybe get a, maybe even earlier. We hope so. So we would always be, always <laughs> welcome on this podcast. Thank so. you. Absolutely. I really appreciate yeah. it. Dan, let me say this to you personally, man. I, I appreciate you showing up every day in that courtroom and I appreciate your take and stance on this, Pat. I know you have the same views and thoughts on it and I appreciate you guys allowing me to have access to your successes in terms of your network and the people that you guys touch every day. So thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks, Merle. All right. right. I thought it was a great conversation. I hope you guys appreciated it too. Like I said, a little different type of show than we normally do. But we we do a lot of different stuff here. Uh, We don't just just talk chicken sandwiches, although we'll get back to that. So we'll be back Thursday, the more college football-centric show or traditional show. Uh, thanks for for listening. If you're if you're new to this because uh, you you listen you want to hear Merle Code, please subscribe so you don't miss our our, our podcast. Tell your friends about us, and uh, we will talk to you later. Some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate, not one based on Carol. She's more focused on hitting a high note than the car in front of her. Why pay a rate based on anyone else? Get one based on you with DriveWise from Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California. Subject to terms and conditions. Rates are determined by several factors which vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for purposes of rating. While in some states, your rate could increase with high-risk driving. Generally, safer drivers will save with DriveWise. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates Northbrook, Illinois.